Welcome to the 34 Welcome to Make Matriarchy Great Again. And welcome, everyone, to the 34 Circe Salon. This is the Make Matriarchy Great Again podcast. I am Sean Marlon Newcomb, and we have the whole band here this week, which is great. Uh, hello, say hello, hello everyone, to Dawn Sam Alden. Hello, Dawn. And welcome, welcome to our own Vicky Noble. Yay. Hi, guys. Nice to be here. I'm missing, for the listener, we don't have, we're having a little technical issue, so our sound effects aren't here, so the normal <laughs> raucous cheering that we'd have is not quite there yet, but just imagine it. Imagine, if you will, the a crowd, crowd an audience, so, and Vicki, we have a very special guest with us this week. Uh, I was wondering if you could tell the listeners about her. Yes, I'm, I'm delighted to talk about my friend Joan Marler. Joan is the founder of the Archaeomythology Institute and the International Journal of Archaeomythology, both of which were created to honor and carry on the work of Maria Gimbutas, the incredible Lithuanian-American archaeologist who put the goddess on the map in the 1980s in our country. I've known Joan for decades, and as a colleague, and as a friend, and as a collaborator in in the in Maria Gimbutas's field of archaeomythology, that it's an interdisciplinary field. I hope Joan will talk about it. Um, she was uh, Joan was uh, Maria's editor as well on her big book, the uh, Goddess Civilization, Civilization of the Goddess. And uh, Joan is her protege since her death in 1994. Um, we've also been compatriots in the growth and development of women's spirituality, the whole women's spirituality movement as it landed in the 1990s at CIIS in San Francisco, the uh, Institute of Integral Studies. Um, uh, and even to this day, there, there's still a program there, and students can get graduate degrees in women's spirituality. And Joan, I think you teach there still. Uh, uh, you you can talk about that if you feel like it. Um, the last thing I want to say is that Joan and I had a very precious opportunity in the early 90s to spend time with Maria in her home in Topanga, and uh, to do some healing with her. We got to function a little bit, besides being her students and her colleagues and so on, we got to function as her healers. Uh, and it was uh, just just so beautiful, such a beautiful experience. So it's possible we might talk about that today. So Joan, please, everybody, welcome Joan Marler. Thank you. I feel very welcomed. And uh, this is a new experience for me to to do a podcast like this. So Vicky and I were talking behind the scenes a while ago about how we go way back in time, you know, and we lived through so many uh, technological developments. And this is every time a new thing comes on, we go, what? What is that? You know, how do I do it? How do we do that? What do I push? You know, and, and trying to really trying to get it together so we're not, you know, embarrassing ourselves and others. But um, <laughs> did you get the holograms that we sent you? Because we're going to do a hologram version of this very soon. Um, holograms? No. <laughs> Don't confuse me. Um, but it is amazing to be able to reach out through the technology and to be in contact with people all over the world. And that I think is the most important part of all of this um, back in the olden days, which, which uh, uh, Vicki will remember very well. I mean, you know, just, you know, sending a letter or sending a, or calling somebody up on the phone, or as she mentioned to me, reminded me about having, uh, having to go to uh, 
telephone from the phone booths on the corner, that sort of thing. And young people, of course, have no idea what the phone booths were, uh, but they they worked sort of, you know, mostly sometimes. <laughs> it's, but, it's mind-boggling, actually, when I think about how quickly that changed. But the phone booth, I think about because during the pandemic, we were all worried about germs and virus, and we're you know wearing our masks, and and still, I mean, I keep put keep it on at times. But I think about how we all would grab this phone just randomly, millions of people, thousands of people going through the same phone, and just, mm-hmm. you know, we didn't think anything of it. So Because that's what yeah. we had. That's all we had, basically. Exactly. Yeah, so there's, it's, it's kind of magical for, for those of us like myself who are not technologically minded, um, who you, you push something, either it works or it doesn't work, and if it works, it's magical. You know, it's yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so um, magic is afoot. <laughs> so, well, I so was trying to yeah, remember if, you, if you've ever told me uh, exactly when you met Maria and how that happened. Do you want to tell us a story about that? Do you? Oh, sure. Yeah. Well, um, first of all, um, Joseph Campbell was a major teacher of mine for for a long time. I didn't go to Sarah Lawrence, but. Um, when he finished teaching at Sarah Lawrence and he was, you know, he often came out to the, the West coast. Um, he and his wife, Jean Erdman had a place in uh, Hawaii. So they would stop by and he'd give some lectures and so on. And then, you know, go off to, to Hawaii. And um, it was just amazing to, to be in his presence and to hear him. And so incredibly inspiring. And one day, and this is the probably, um, the late seventies or maybe, maybe it was already 1980 or the early eighties. I don't know exactly which date it was, but um, he began talking about Maria Gimbutas. And I, I was sitting in the back of the, of the auditorium and looking at the slides he was, he was uh, putting, projecting. And I had a primal experience. It was a complete absolute primal experience. I felt like someone had stroked up my chakras like and I was on fire. And I thought, I said to myself, I've got to meet this woman. I will meet Maria Gimbutas and I will interview her. And at that time I was uh, doing programming at KPFA in Berkeley. Um, Many people know about KPFA, a remarkable uh, station that was uh, founded by pacifists in 1949, and um, it basically changed my life listening to it. I mean, I just realized the power of those ideas uh, that were spread around Northern and Central California um, made, I think it contributed to the circulation of essential ideas in California, and it certainly um, influenced me. So at a certain point, I realized I've got to go down there. I've got to volunteer. Um, so I did, and I began doing programming, and it was very easy to just step into that uh, in, in those days. And so I, I was I had my own program after a while, and I developed a, sen- a confidence. And I guess it was a little bit of an arrogant confidence, but nevertheless, I had the sense that no one that I asked to be on the air with me doing a live program for an hour, by the way, um, is going to refuse me. And so if I can just find where she is, she will not refuse me either. (laughs) So anyway, so sometime after that, and it was probably, you know, some few years after that, I I realized that um, she was going to be in California giving a lecture, giving a weekend seminar at California Institute of Integral Studies. So I made arrangements for me to go there, bring all my equipment and to, to record her. And this was audio, not, not uh, video. And that absolutely changed my life. I mean, to be there with her, you know, in person and to, to record her voice and then to be able to put it on the air. And then, uh, of course, I asked her to, for an interview, which she gave to me. And after the interview, uh, this was after her, after her her lecture. She said, "Hmm, do you uh, have you ever done any editing, by the way?" <laughs> I can imagine that. And I said, "Well, yes, I have actually." And she said, "Well, I'm looking for somebody to do some editing for me. Could I just send you something and you know just see if it works out?" I said, "Sure." 
Well, that began something that, again, that was a whole other changing of my life, you know, <laughs> many different levels of transformation. And um, first she started sending me article, various articles, encyclopedia articles or, or journal articles or whatever. And then she started sending me uh, parts of the manuscript of what would become the civilization of the goddess. Amazing. That's yes. amazing. And that, can you imagine? And so I would uh, combing through every word and then making the edits that, you know, su suggested. At first she said, oh, well, just, just mark things in the text and I'll have, some, I'll have somebody else type it out. I said, Maria, I have a computer. I mean, I can, I can do that. You don't have to have another person do it. You know, and speaking of, speaking of new technology. And she said, well, okay, we can try that. <laughs> so, so we worked on it for several years and I would go down to, to Los Angeles, down to um, Topanga where she lived, which was uh, incredible to be there in her space and to, to be able to commune with her, to be able to, to not just uh, hear her words, but actually to feel her presence and to be able to ask her uh, questions. And I, I so many times later on, mm. you know, if I only knew then what I know now, if I only had the background then that I have now, the things we I could ask her that I it's too late to ask her now. You know, it doesn't do any good to kick myself for that because I just I did the best I could at the time. You know, and but, what a destiny! What a destiny you had, and you didn't even know it. Well, it it was a phenomenal destiny, really, because yeah. I, you know I remember one day you know working on you know part of the manuscript, and here was this sentence. There is no evidence of a father god throughout the entire Paleolithic and into the Neolithic, or, you know, throughout the Neolithic. And I just went, oi, 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 oi. I just realized, I just literally stopped and froze in my, in my seat. And I just thought, this is, this, yeah. that <laughs> sentence is really dangerous. You know, it's, it's very yeah. radical. And, uh, you know, there are people who would, you know, well, I won't go into it, but that's unacceptable, even in, you know, even in the 1980s at that time. Yes. Even in secular culture, I would say. Yeah. yeah. Right. It was so taboo. So, to challenge the Father God, that uh -huh. he didn't even exist. <laughs> he didn't even <laughs> exist. <laughs> And then what that means, what does that mean? And what are all these female images that she yeah. was finding, you know, mm -hmm. and thousands of them. That's and pretty, so anyway, that's. Uh, can, can I ask you a little bit about that? Because that's a pretty, that statement is, is an extraordinary statement. Could you say a little more about what, what were the images that were found? What do, maybe just for the listener, kind of the, give them sort of the, the idea of, what was it that we had in terms of, let's say, a mother god at that time frame? Okay, well, I'm going to take a little. Excuse me, I'm going to take a little step back before that, and then go into sure. answer your question. Um, before she started investigating the the Neolithic period, and Neolithic um, beca became to mean basically the earliest farmers. I mean, it has a, a other other meanings too, but that's the way it's being used now. It's the way she used it as well. And um, there was a time in Europe before farming, and the farming came from Anatolia, present-day Turkey, over there. And then there was a tradition in Turkey of, of Neolithic societies in which people created um, female images, female images that, that seemed to be that came all the way from the Paleolithic times and then into the Neolithic. And it was something that people did and they, they made them over and over and over again and seemed to be related to their, their, their sense of the sacred. And so when, when they came and established uh, farming societies in Europe, they started out in, in what is in what is now Thessaly in, uh, in, uh, excuse me, in uh, Greece and um, then moved up into the Balkan region and, and spread along the, um, the Great Danube River and so on. But always what went with them was, were these fi figurines. And, and each, 
each um, Neolithic society uh, had its own uh, had its own style. It, it's identifiable in terms of the Vincha. The Vincha culture didn't make the figurines look the same way as the Sesquil culture and the Sesquil culture, you know, and on and on. But there were still certain uh, commonalities. Very often, the, the representation they were, you know, with breasts and with, with vulvas. Sometimes huge vulvas. You know, sometimes really big ones. Um, and uh, sometimes they were the images were naked. Sometimes they were they seemed to be wearing uh, costumes and some elegant costumes. And sometimes they seemed to be naked, but they were inscribed with with signs and symbols. And and now she began working with that material after she had already become known and very much honored as a Bronze Age specialist. And she you know, as long as she was writing about the Bronze Age and she was really, uh, she was a polyglot, she was so well, um, she was probably the most knowledgeable person about um, Neolithic societies or even the prehistory of of, uh, Europe at that time. And so she was honored for what the work she did. But when, but this question... um, work that she did was where the uh the kurgan theory came from so you you all may have heard yes, that. Yeah. yeah the bronze age the bronze age is the time where where organized warfare began and the and the use of weapons for warfare and uh, then you know weapons made out of bronze which could make them very very you know powerful cutting and slashing instruments of war and she was very impressed by the difference, the enormous difference between the, the material culture of the Bronze Age and the material culture that was found from excavations of Neolithic societies. And so this question came up in her that she became absolutely passionate, and she uses the word passionate, to find the answer to why is the Neolithic so different from the Bronze Age? And she spent the last 30 years of her life examining that problem, that question. Yeah, amazing. And tell us what happened when she started asking that question. (laughs) Well, she started, well, she was asking the question and it wasn't so obvious to people because it wasn't until she started to, to, to really talk about it in symposia and conferences. And she did a lot of that. And also um, writing a lot of articles and um, then producing books about it that that her colleagues were going, uh, huh. Uh, especially when she started using the word goddess for these female images. Yes. Um, because she said, well, if they're, they seem to be in the realm of the, of the sacred and, you know, call the male, the very, very few male images that were found gods. So these are goddesses, you know? Um, <laughs> so she, from the very get go in terms of her explorations of the Neolithic um, uh, material culture, she started invading areas that had been the, well, let's just say, uh, typically, a a typical kind of interpretation that then she didn't go along with. I mean, she had her her own direction of of inquiry and her own conclusions from those directions. Yes, and she saw broad patterns and uh, made a, what I see as a synthesis, right? She was so uh, she was so m- maybe the interdisciplinary quality of her research is part of the reason for that. Maybe it's just the way her mind worked. What would you say, Joan? Well, what I would say is that um, once she started, well, once she started investigating uh, the Neolithic period, she told me that. At first, when she was finding in her own excavations, find digging, you know, and finding these uh, uh, sculptures, most of which were female, and 
is also traveling a lot around uh, Eastern and Central Europe and going into all of the museums, the major museums, the, the, the regional museums, all of them to see what did they have. And she found that she said there were, there were thousands of images, all misunderstood, you know, just like they, they just, nobody didn't, the people didn't know what to do with these things or what they were, what they represented. And so she, at first she thought, well, somebody's got to do something. Somebody has, and she made uh, extensive inquiries um, among her colleagues and um, to say, well, has anybody studied these? Nobody okay. has. Can we stop right there just for a second? I just want to, for the listener, kind of put this really central issue that I know Vicky and Dawn, that we always talk about, uh, and put this in stark relief, which is this, you have this um, well-respected scholar when she's studying the Bronze Age, the warlike um, civilizations that we've inherited and we talk about. And then now you have her suddenly having, you know, realizing that she's, she's having an insight into something about an earlier, a different era that seems to be in stark contrast with this. So, um, it, so right now, Joan, is, it's, it, it sounds like this is sort of the beginning of when there is, she becomes a little more, uh, it was controversial be the right word for it, or at least questioned, you know, it's, she had less, less of a, um, discord when she was just doing Bronze Age work, but when she goes into this newer area, she now gets more of a pushback. Would that be correct to say? Well, the pushback didn't happen immediately because uh, the first thing she was doing is she realized that she had a, she had to do her own excavations, and since she was she was at um, she was a full professor at UCLA, and um, she had clout, and she. Um, and at that point, that time, the in the 60s, the university had money. <laughs> it was a possibility for things to happen. But, and she did a lot there. And that would be a whole discussion, just, you know, what she, you know, the effect of, of the study of archaeology at uh, UCLA because of her and, and her collaboration with colleagues and so on. But um, she was able to um, get permission uh, to excavate and she excavated in southeastern Europe five major Neolithic sites and in collaboration with uh, regional museums and in other uh, collaboration with other universities and so on with with students and uh, other colleagues coming with her she had quite a team that she put together and um, then she began to find this incredible material and she told me that uh, in the beginning she didn't know what she was looking at, but she did know that she wanted to make sure that everybody, the, her whole team working with her, paid special attention to everything that looked like it could have been made by human hands. Even if it was just a little tiny piece of clay or a little fragment of something, collect it all because she understood that the scholars previously, unless they found a, a very special um, uh, figurine that was you know, something that they could just clean up and put in the museum, um, they didn't really pay much attention to it. Or they didn't even pay much attention initially to the context in which it was found. Mm. And, a lot of, and a lot of times the, the um, sculptures were found maybe just tossed into a uh, into a dump or something, or they they weren't in a context that could say anything about how they were used. So she really wanted to find the context that would be a meaningful context and to collect as many of these pieces as possible. So um, her first excavations, you know, they were really amazing. Um, like her excavation at Citigroy and she excavated it uh, sharing the directorship with Colin Renfrew, her her colleague and incredible images that were, had all these uh, engravings on them. They were just stunning looking, but there was no way to tell, you know, how they were used. They were in a kind of a refuse dump. And so she said, okay, um, I'm just going to keep looking, you know, <laughs> go throughout the other sites. One thing she also did 
with all of these sites was to make sure that there were uh, radiocarbon dates were made and and that the collection of of um, materials that could be radiocarbon dated were uh, were found and that was kind of just in the beginning of the process of creating radiocarbon dates so there was a lot of misunderstanding people really didn't know uh, the actual dates of these or how they related to other other cultures in different areas and it was assumed that anything any uh, culture system that was highly refined particularly in Anatolia excuse me in um, in Mesopotamia was older older and wiser you know <laughs> and um, what they began to find with these um, with these um, radiocarbon dates that she was finding in her excavations in Europe was that um, particularly once they were using a calibrated radiocarbon dating, that they were sometimes 2000 years earlier than the ones in Mesopotamia. Well, that just caused a huge, <laughs> big explosion because there were so many uh, so many um, scholars who had their whole careers based upon the way that they had interpreted the dates and the relationships between one one uh, culture group and another, and and so on and so forth. So there are so many parts of what she achieved and what she found and uh, in her in her working life that are just rife with all kinds of. Uh, turbulence because she was pushing the envelope. And once you're dealing with radiocarbon dates, it's not like just, well, I kind of think it's older. Well, you can't do that, right? Or even the, the process of comparing in terms of the uh, of the attributes, the physical attributes, it doesn't hold up anymore. Yeah, so, she was so disruptive without even, you know, intending to be a, a dissenter. <laughs> She was no, just I mean, doing her work. Yeah, she was doing her work, and she was trying to be as she was being as as careful uh, and as methodical and as professional as she possibly could. She had a, she had a great training. Uh, she had a classical education, interdisciplinary classical education in Lithuania, and which she brought, you know, and she came with a with a PhD from a very very fine. Um, European um, University Tubingen. Anyway, that's um, so. She came with all the credentials and and the background, and she applied it to what she was doing. So here she was finding um, all this material, all these sculptures, and of course she had a whole team doing all the other things. It wasn't just doing that, but uh, doing all the normal things that people do when they uh, they excavate in a in a very sequential way, but. It wasn't until she finally started uh, excavating at the sesquiculture Neolithic site of Achilion in Thessaly that she found what she was looking for, which is that the sculptures she was finding, that her whole team was finding, um, were associated with the activities, women's activities, specific uh -huh. women's activities. Uh -huh. And that was the first time it was clear to anybody that there was a relationship between the, the sculptures and what they represented or what she saw that they represented and their activities. And at Achilleon, what she found was, first of all, the radiocarbon dates that, that um, she was able to um, deduce from there by, by making sure that the the charcoal that was found was sent to the, you know, uh, several really excellent uh, laboratories. And what came back was that uh, the site of Achillean is radiocarbon dated to um, 6,000, 6,400 to 5,000, let's see, 6,400 to 5,600. I think and it was nine, 800 years of continual development. And it became the it became the the chronological yardstick of the Neolithic societies of Europe, of at least that area of Europe, of, uh, particularly of um, of uh, Greece. It makes me so, think of that interview we watched, where uh, I think it was David Anthony. I wonder if it was David Anthony or uh, Dick uh, Mallory, uh, but one of them said. In 1972, he walked into her classroom and she 
it was almost all women. And he felt like he had walked into a women's locker room and uh, he left. <laughs> and I thought, well, we all feel that way all the time, like we live in a men's locker room. <laughs> she really turned the whole thing upside down in a way that, uh, as as Dawn has written here in the chat, you know, she she disrupted a lot of paradigms and uh, she became part of the long tradition of women's history being erased or, uh, you know, covered. Just, just right. for the for the listener to understand, we're having a little tech difficulty. So um, Dawn, if you're not used to hearing, uh, you know, Dawn speaking here, it's because she's sending us some questions because she's having trouble with her microphone. But yes, exactly. Thank you, Vicki. It's uh, one of the things Dawn has pointed out. And this is the kind of the what I was asking a little bit about and the, the sort of the stark contrast, which is the idea that so much of women's history gets erased and then, or is, or is often, if not erased, like the story of the, of the women's locker room, Vicki, it's something where some scholars are unable to see it or unwilling to uh, see it. Yes. It's um, dismissed. We're quite used to our work being dismissed. And, you know, I, I was a women's history major in college, and, and then I've worked as a historian. Even when we made the mother piece cards, Karen was an anthropologist and I was a historian, and we brought that to our work. And by the time uh, I met Maria in, uh, in the 1980s, you know, she was very much uh, shockingly part of that tradition. What she was uncovering was the history of the world up to the point of, of patriarchy. Patriarchy's 5,000 years old or so. And before that, we, it was called, uh, they just didn't call it anything. They called it prehistory. And they pretended that it wasn't civilization until patriarchy, until uh, Mesopotamia and so on. The rise of the state. Yeah, and a lot of those those attitudes continue. I mean, certain so many regressive attitudes are deeply ingrained, and uh, that's a whole <laughs> that's a whole discussion. But I just wanted to repeat the dates of the radiocarbon dates, particularly these are the um, calibrated radiocarbon dates, uh, which means that they are more accurate than the original radiocarbon um, process. Six thousand four hundred to 5,600 Or seventh millennium to sixth millennium. I mean, amazing. <laughs> yeah, right. So that in itself is something significant. I mean, she, she really was a, was a stickler for, for the essential details and getting the right dates is essential. And getting the context establishing the context for these figurines. So I want to return to what she found in terms of uh, context. Um, she found that um, the place where she was finding most of the, the figurines was or in courtyards between the houses where there were um, places for the grinding of grain, um, great um, outdoor uh, Places where the uh, fires were, were burned, uh, were burning, um, hearths, uh, hearths were there, and right. also and baking was big, and baking, bake um, the outdoor ovens that were in the shape of a pregnant belly, basically, yeah, and um, all through that whole that whole setup there, and with. You know the grinding of the grinding of the grain and the the making of the the making of the the bread and the baking of the bread and so on. These were so. These were also intrinsically connected with altars with um, seated female figures, and she called them the pregnant goddess. Pregnant because the these seated figures, and sometimes they were standing, sometimes sitting, were pregnant. And they seem to be looking out over the activities that the women and, and probably they had the children with them were doing. And you can just imagine songs being sung, um, stories being told. Um, uh, maybe children were giving, given little you know, bits of the, 
um, dough to work with, you know, it's like, oh, you know, you want to make a little something and you can put it in the oven and, and you know, you know that they were interacting with their children because the children were with them. And um, so um, there were also some some houses there, special houses that were not hab- for habitation, but they were for other activities like um, the making of ceramics and, and so on. And these also had altars. And on those altars were what she called the bird goddess and the snake goddess, that they were not found where where women were, were uh, we're assuming that they were women or people who were happily involved in domestic activities. Um, they were, they, the bird goddess and the snake goddess were not part of that whole, those whole activities, but they were on the altars inside these houses uh, nearby. And she interpreted the bird goddess, for instance, as the, the the body of the woman with with breasts and with arm hands and arms sometimes the hands had claws not just human hands and a long neck of a water bird and a mask with the beak and sometimes a beautiful hairdo so it was a woman and it was a bird and these seemed to be the water birds the birds that would f- fly out you know in uh, one part of the year and return seasonally uh, back, and then the bird got the snake goddess was a snake-like figure with a with a human mask, so woman and, as snake, and um, that was an amazingly important thing to find that association with those altars inside those those structures, and the hybrid bird woman and bird snake. Uh, go all the way back to the Paleolithic. They probably go all the way back to the beginnings of our evolution, but they are found in right. the Paleolithic period, you know, 20, 30,000 years ago. And and Gimbutas, unlike so many archaeologists, she knew about that. And she made those associations. And that was very unusual. And also it's kind of taboo. The, the archaeologists don't like that. Uh, that there could be such a long continuity. That was one of the things that over her lifetime, I felt she came to understand and articulate really clearly that there was this extremely long continuity of uh, cultural uh, imagery and icons and uh, a kind of, as uh, as uh, Marshak would have said, a storied tradition that was built around the great goddess or this uh, great female matrix figure. Mm-hmm. Yes, I mean, indeed. That was radical. Yes, and it's interesting that a few years ago, um, there was a, a sculpture of a hand. If you open out your hands and you see that, that, that space, that well, unless you have huge hands, but I mean, <laughs> most you know, women's hands anyway, um, there was a sculpture found about that size in a cave in uh, Germany and dated to between 35,000 and 40,000 years uh, BC, BCE. Uh-huh. And that's really early. And it's kind of the earliest sculpture. I mean, they're trying to say that the so-called um, the so-called lion man, which is like, we, there's no sense that it really is a man, but of course you have to find a man somewhere, um, was was the earliest. In fact, there was a huge exhibition uh, a, few, a few years ago at the British Museum um, about um, ne- um, Paleolithic art, and they had a, a reconstruction of the so-called lion man there. No mention at all of this female image that was stunning and let me describe it i wish we i wish i could show you a picture of it because she's she's standing and she has very large breasts as though they are swollen with milk i mean or they are they're large breasts they're all inscribed with signs the signs go up over her shoulders around on both sides um, they the sign the signs and symbols go down uh, into her her um, her uh, uh, belly 
it looked like she was uh, pregnant. And she had a huge, 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 huge vulva. Just really, really exaggerated. Now, some of the, the signs and symbols that are on her body from, from that date continue all the way into the Neolithic period in, in the collection of what, what Maria um, considered to be a sacred script. And it's been studied quite a bit by, by um, linguists. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a phenomenon, really, that there would be so many hundreds of signs arranged in such an orderly fashion and expressing um, what is considered to be the ideas, not, you know, not an alphabet, not uh, probably not even, uh, uh, anyway, a lot of things that are people generally assume about early writing, but that those signs that were on her body are found there as well. Wow. Wow. Some longevity there. There's some, you know, speaking of the, the, uh, the the length of time that certain things continue and are found in similar contexts. And one is way that that oh, really matters is that the, uh, when I was going to school, you know, a hundred years ago, um, the the historians de- they developed the idea of civilization based on writing. There were other attributes as well. But the writing was paramount. And so they said the first writing was 3000 BCE in Mesopotamia and Egypt. So that was the beginning of civilization. And that's sort of the orthodoxy. And, and what, what Gimbutas did is to push it back at least 2000 years to the Neolithic in old Europe. But what you're talking about is the, the signs and the letters that seem to appear the uh, way back in the Paleolithic, and I didn't realize that it went back that far. Right. I wouldn't call them letters, really. I mean, they may, some of them may be similar to some of the letters of the alphabet that we're quite aware of, but they probably did not function as letters. Right. Right. You know, so that can confuse people because, and, and alphabet is very, very, it appears very late in the development of writing anyway. So, yeah. But, for signs and symbols representing ideas, and they you were inscribed. Uh, the I think of the um, the P is the one I'm always interested in because it looks like a pregnant woman, and there were lots of P's as we would see them. I don't know what they called them, and I don't know what it meant, but it, but they look like pregnant women, and they're all over the Paleolithic. And then I think of Miriam's work with the M and the V. And how, uh, what a long continuity there is with those, what we now know as letters, but uh, were symbols or ideograms. Um, and we're going to have Miriam on the show in a few weeks. Right, so this is Miriam Robbins Dexter, just so people will yeah. know. Yeah. Yes, thank you. So that'll be a wonderful continuity from this uh, interview with you, Joan. Uh, I just want to, uh, before we move on, I wanted to, again, with this image, um, a couple of things. Joan, could you again say the date again? Because I had heard that Lion Man uh, figurine, it caught my attention as well, that they were saying that was a Lion Man and that this was the oldest and we had been talking about these older um, figurines. So if you could say the the, uh, time frame again. And also, because I'll try to find an image uh, to maybe show... uh, with the with the podcast, is there a, a, a name for the figurine? Is there that I could search for, or one could search for to get a look at it? Yeah, the 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 cave is Holzfeld. Could you spell it in Germany? Um, I don't want to misspell it. <laughs> okay, don't worry. I'll, we'll find it later. No worries. Yeah, and and let's see, it's something I should know, but not not right now. Um, and oh, oh, the date. Um, so 35,000, between 35,000 and 40,000. Okay. I should say years ago, or, you know, by the time you get back to, you know, to that long, you're not going to quibble over a couple thousand years, you know, not going to be BC or BP or whatever, but. Right, right. uh, Okay. Thank you. Hosfell. H-O-L-S-F-E-L. Thank you, Don. Oh, thank you, Vicki. (laughs) 
FBL. Okay, thank you. But it's really, really worth seeing. And when it was when it was uh, found, of course, the archaeologists were saying, "Oh, it must have been a Paleolithic sex toy. Look at that; those big breasts, and look at that big vulva." You know, it's a good thing. And these were called these were called Venuses because it the the male gaze is assumed. You know, why would you have naked female images, particularly if they have exaggerated attributes, not be there for for the males to enjoy? Right? Yeah. And uh, Maria was just like, no, <laughs> that's not what it was all about. It's this is. These are this is metaphor of of powers, you know, metaphor of 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 nature, you know. This, yes. You know, and it's not just fertility, 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 fertility. Venus, Venus, Venus. I mean, yes, fertility is part of it, but the whole round of coming into being, going out of being, you know, dying and returning again. She said, in that whole round. Um, which is what their, their people's early people's sense of the sacred was in relationship to the powers of the, the living world, that it's regeneration that keeps the whole thing going. You know, the, yes. the coming apart of previously living forms to release the nutrients into the earth for the, you know, for the growth of new life. The cycles. It was, it's, it was all about I, cycles. Right. It's all about the cycles of life. And each yes. part is sacred. So not to get hung up on what, you know, people project their ideas that why would so many female figures be, be created if it wasn't for, you know, male sexual enjoyment or something like that, you know. So didn't Maria write an article refuting that? Do I am I remembering that correctly? Oh, I'm sure she did. I She wrote so many articles and that was one of the things that she definitely wrote about it, but I can't put my finger right now in my, you know, about okay. which article that would be. Um, Don has given us a correction to the whole fels. H-O-H-L-E, I see. Ah, yes. F-E-L-S. H-O-H-L-E-F-E-L-S. Uh-huh. Thank you. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Joan, can I ask you if, uh, just as we we start coming towards the, the end of the podcast, if we can kind of just touch on some of the major points of what uh, Maria uh, in Maria's work, in terms of looking at old Europe, um, the major points that she sort of emphasized and the um, the resistance, those, I, let's say, major points of resistance in terms of her work um, that we still see today. Because her work was so controversial when she started writing about the female imagery. Yes. Um, sure. Okay, so when she started writing, uh, she was in the midst of her excavations, and she was so um, excited about what she was finding that she decided that she absolutely had to produce a book. That first book um, was um, called Gods and Goddesses of Old Europe. And she wanted to call it Goddesses and Gods of Old Europe because most of the imagery was female, but her... But her um, Huh. At, at Thames and Hudson, the editor there just said, no, forget it. It would be improper to put goddess first in the title. And she said, I was too, she was just too busy to fight with him over it. And so, yeah, whatever. Okay. So, um, so the fact that God of God was first in the title, um, it didn't make a lot of, you know, it wasn't really a, so much of a problem with her, with her colleagues. In fact, in fact, Colin Renfrew and others, you know, were remarking about how, Oh, there's a lot of you know nice images, and and people will be interested to see these images because many of them. It w- this was the first time that it was possible for for uh, Euro American audiences to basically see these if they weren't if they weren't specialists, um, being able to go through uh, uh, sources that are not so readily available. So then in 1982, she had the opportunity to republish the book and she made it into Goddesses and Gods of Old Europe. That's when eyebrows began to be raised that, oh, she's really on to something political here, putting goddess first. Hmm. 
I don't think we like that, do we, guys? No, we don't. <laughs> so there was this kind of pulling that's a, back. That's astonishing, actually. That's really just that little shift flipped people out. The fact that she put goddess first. It showed her intention to have goddess first, and she tried to explain over and over again, it's because most of the images are female. That's why. And she still had gods. She did not neglect the gods. She did not neglect the male imagery. So anyway, um, <clears throat> later um, when she produced the the language of the goddess, she was taking it further. I mean, she was really investigating a, a lot more investigation, and she said that the, the language of the goddess is is a book of archaeomythology, and she defined archaeomythology. <clears throat> as her way of expanding the uh, expanding the parameters of her own field of archaeology, because if you try are trying to say anything at all about the the beliefs and rituals of of early so called pre uh, his, prehistoric societies, the techniques available within traditional archaeology wouldn't allow you to do that. In fact, it was frowned upon. You could, it was it was believed that you couldn't even do it. You can't even be you can't be taken seriously if you're going to start doing that. You know, and uh, you can't say anything about religion. No, you you can't go there at all. I mean, if you're yeah. weighing and measuring things, and you're you know making whatever. I mean trying to they were trying to make archaeology as a scientific discipline that uh, in which they can all agree you know that this is something that fits into that that mode whereas if you are talking about symbolism mythology um, religion uh, people's beliefs uh, and so on that is definitely outside the pale and so archaeomythology intentionally combines not only archaeology, which is very important, but also uh, mythology, the, tr the whole traditions of, of what comes down through the mythological record, um, um, whatever is found in ancient historical documents, referring to, um, um, well, you, you how far back you can't go back to the Neolithic time to find doc historical documents around that. But as soon as they appear, then there are certain things that were said in descriptions about how people lived and, and, and what they did and, and what, their, what was found and so on. Um, and, of course, linguistics. Um, old Europe, which is a word that was already has already been used in this podcast today, was a term that she coined to represent those um, those cultures in uh, the whole area of southeastern Europe that were not Indo-European. They were not male-dominated. Um, they were egalitarian. And in which they found, you know, many female images, and there seemed to be a similarity of of beliefs and rituals um, within those societies that she called Old Europe, even though they had um, various differences. But the differences did not uh, outweigh the similarities. And likewise, so, she was also aware of the broader similarities across the whole. Uh, Afro-Eurasian continent, you know, she she knew about uh, goddess images in further east, and um, and in uh, the Middle East and in Egypt and so on. And nowadays, you you're hardly allowed to make those comparisons. They act like you have to stay in your area. And she did stay in her area. I don't mean that she didn't, but she understood that there were others, and she sometimes made comparisons. Right. Well, she was very disciplined about you know, staying within her area because she, she didn't think that it would be appropriate for her to, um, to make a lot of uh, interpretations of material that seemed to be similar to what she was digging up and what she was in-depth studying. Um, 
and to say, oh, it's it, it's it means this here, and it must mean that the same thing over there. She was very careful because she said if she didn't have a background, a deep enough background to justify her interpretations, she shouldn't make them at all. I Although, wish they all felt that way. <laughs> I'm sorry. I wish they all felt that way. Well, anyway, so. Um, but you're right, uh, Vicky. There are similarities, and um, once you see it in one area, you know you can see, oh, huh, how interesting! Look at that over there. And there was a lot of circulation of, of population yes. too. You know, there yeah. was a lot of trading. There was a lot. So it's not like they didn't uh, they didn't know about each other, and they didn't recognize uh, certain things. So it's a very complex picture. But I highly recommend people getting hold of her books. And um, not all of them are in print. A Civilization of the Goddess, which is her magnum opus, um, is no longer in print, unfortunately. And I think that uh, Civilization of the Goddess, I mean, um, the language of the goddess has gone out of print as well. But you can find them. You know, just do a Google search. You can find them and grab them because I get one. Yeah, before yeah, it's too get them. Yeah, if you wait too long, the price is going to go higher and higher and higher because they're hard to. They will become harder to find, and they are treasures, really treasures. Joan, one of the things we were hoping to get you to talk about a little bit, and we were kind of running out of time, uh, is is your own work uh, as what I, I always call you the protege of Maria Gimbutas. You, you have carried her work on through all kinds of uh, venues, conferences and uh, talks and books. And, uh, you know, would you share with us that experience for you and maybe some of the things we should know about your website and so on? Uh, well, it just became very obvious to me that, that, her work need, needed to be continued, and she was always trying to, you know, groom people to take over. Please keep it going, keep it going. And she said one. She said to me, uh, I remember the exact time I was standing with her in her room, which doubled as her studio, and this manuscript came in the came in the mail, and she opened it, and it was a manuscript from uh, from Harold Harman, uh, who is a German scholar living in in Finland. Um, and it was his book that then was soon after that was published about um, language. I mean, excuse me, about uh, early literacy in Europe. And she said, that's what I need. I need some de dedicated linguist to sit down and work for the next 20 years on the script, on the old European <laughs> script. And so I you know, repeated that to him. And that's what he's done. Yeah, that's exactly that. what he's done, and it's stunning. So anyway, he's the vice president of the Institute of Archaeomythology, which I and a few other uh, people formed in, in the late um, 1990s. And um, it is a, I think it's in 2003, uh, became a nonprofit, and we, we put on a number of international conferences. I thought, you know, we should actually do some work in uh, – in the area that was old Europe, let's go see. Let's go see. We have to meet these these archaeologists, meet these people who are digging this stuff up, you know, and and see what they think about all of this. And so it, that started uh, a number of international conferences and symposia and publications and so on that really expanded our work. And um, we created the Institute of Archaeomythology to to be a, a place where scholars all over the world who are interested in this interdisciplinary uh, way of uh, of exploration could could meet and and interconnect. Um, and we had a few very very dynamic years, and then a, a few years uh, in between that kind of was not so not so dynamic. But then we're coming back into a new into a new year. Uh, new series of uh, of um, interactions with colleagues that will include online discussions and online uh, uh, lectures and so on and so forth. But we just haven't incorporated the the uh, technologies. You know, given the fact, I think I think Deb uh, Vicky will understand. <laughs> it's taken us old fogies a while to say, oh, we could actually do this. <laughs> and we could access this. 
could actually access this, yes. Um, and so that will be coming up for the Institute. Right now, you can see what we have uh, there. Um, um, it's uh, www.archaeo uh, methodology, one word, uh, .org is the website. And uh, if you go up, you'll, you'll see what we have there now. And it includes some of the publications, but not all of them that we've done. And there will be, hopefully, in the near future, uh, closer than, than further away, a re revitalization of the, of the Institute and its, and its functions. But even as it stands, it could be a whole course of study for somebody if you've never gone on the site and you've never investigated all the articles that are there. Yes, there is the as Vicky mentioned in the very beginning, uh, the the, the um, Journal of Archaeomythology is there, and if you just sign up and, and give yourself a username and password, that's for you to have. Nobody else will know it, and you will have permanently um, full access, free access to all of the all of the journal articles, and uh, you can you know print them out, you know share them, whatever. It's completely completely open and please do share them because there's some amazing stuff there and there'll be even more uh, material yeah. added. That's wonderful to hear. I'm just wondering too, in terms of the more recent generation, the, the undergraduates now, are you finding there's still the same interest in that? Is there, is that lineage continuing? Is it healthy? Is it well in terms of this area? Well, the students of course have been influenced by, by the backlash that's happened. Um, and a lot of the professors have said, don't even bother to read Maria Gimbeta's work. She's just an old fuddy-duddy or you can't trust it or, you know, this goddess thing. And they're rolling their eyes and so on. But at the same time, something very fascinating is happening. And that is because she was so far out there and so visible with um, her bringing forth to the lay people, to the so-called non-professionals, uh, non um, and and people were just so excited about about her material that it has kind of lit a fire under the archaeologists, realizing that oh she can't be, we can't allow her to be the only one who is writing about about religion and beliefs and rituals um, and symbolism in in these early periods. So we have to do it ourselves, and so that has spawned a lot of new work. Even though you know they're still going kind of grumpy about her, but um, that's something I think is is very very positive. And some of the students are um, basically reaching out, and they are um, further extending the boundaries of interpretation, and uh, that's a good thing as well. So um, there's something. There was something else that was really pressing for me to say, but what is it, Vicky? What was I going to talk about before the end? Well, mm. you know, I think the fact that you did your dissertation um, in in, uh, in terms of her her life work and the archaeological responses to her work and your own uh, uh, your evidence based. Uh, story about that. That's very important. I don't know if you've published it yet, but when you do, we all want to read it. I'll let you know when I when I allow it to be published. Okay. I articles and, to write. And, and what about the biography? Um, well, it's coming out of that material and then to be enlarged. Wonderful. Wonderful. So needs to happen. This is Thank this is re yeah. this is the women's history, you know. This is the revision that we have to do. Right. It's it's women's history, but it's also human history. Absolutely, um, it yeah. really is. And to see that that in these early societies that were, I mean, she was very clear that the old European societies were um, egalitarian. Women did not rule over men, and that's why at a certain point she stopped using the term matriarchy. She stopped using the term matriarchy because of the criticism that was, it was coming in about it, as, as though people were assuming that patriarchy is men moving from the top, matriarchy is women ruling from the top, and she was saying, no, no, that's not it. Right. That's not it. 
it's something quite different than that, and it's something that these are balanced, balanced societies. And we probably won't have a chance to go into this very, very, very important part of her work, contribution of her work, um, that she also spent her whole life working on, which is the um, inter-Europeanization of of uh, Europe. Yes. The, the end of the end of old Europe and the beginning of patriarchy in Europe, and um, I don't know how long do we have before the well, end. Well, you know what? Uh, here's my thought. So that we're up coming up to the end of this. Can we have a part two? With I you? think we yeah we'll need a part two if you know because right, this is really an important part of it, and it's also something that is is um, filled with controversy, but also. Um, there's some incredible things happening in terms of the vindication of her work. Uh, yes, that's wonderful. Let's do that. Absolutely, yeah. We'll set. The, we'll talk uh, right after this because we're all excited about uh, that. We we talk about that topic a lot, and it would be great to discuss that with you. So with that, let me. I wish I had my sound effects, but I don't. But I'd like to thank Joan Marler for joining us today. Thank you very much, Joan. Yeah, thank you. Really. Thank you, Joan. Beautiful. And Vicki, thank you as always. It's always wonderful to have the full band together. So thank you for being here. Absolutely. My pleasure. And my today silent partner, Dawn yeah. Samond. <laughs> thank yeah. you, Dawn. Uh, I'll assume there is a, we, we'll, the listener will assume that you are also thank saying something, so but you know, use your imagination. But thank yes, you very much, Dawn. And we hope your internet gets well soon. All right. And thank you all for listening. This has been the 34 Circe Salon, the Make Matriarchy Great Again podcast. I am Sean Marlon Newcomb, and thank you all for joining us. 